You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I know I say it all the time, but there are a lot of things you could be doing right now, and the fact that you are spending your time with me means a lot. I've got a great episode for you, and I want to minimize the jibber-jabber at the top so you can get to more jibber-jabber. Yeah, that's it. And I just want to remind you about the affiliate links associated with this show. If you are looking to buy any gear, go to ToneMob.com Sweetwater for any of your Sweetwater purchases. That literally helps out so much. So if you are going to be making any gear purchases and Sweetwater carries it, please remember to use that link. ToneMob.com Sweetwater is the thing to use, and it helps out immensely. There are other links in the show notes, and of course, if you make any purchases from Stringjoy, that of course helps me as well because I am a partner in that company. So if you need strings, that is the place to go. All right, that is enough business for now. There's already enough business at the top of these things. Let's get right into the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have John Dines from Origin Effects. What's going on, man? Hello. Yeah, nice nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, this is a conversation I've been really looking forward to because I've been aware of Origin for a long time, and I've played them in shops, and I've seen them on boards, and now I have one here. And I realize, like most of the American companies, I'm fairly familiar with, like the the general story as far as uh, how they formed. But I, Origin to me just kind of popped out of nowhere, and I know that's not entirely true. So I was excited to get you on to talk about that, and you know your backstory, how you got involved with the company, and and the whole thing. So probably should start with you, and then we'll roll into the rest of it and see where this goes. Well, you mean just how I got involved in the guitar industry in general? How, when, when did you start playing? I started playing, well, I started playing guitar when I was 12, I guess. Um, but it wasn't my first instrument. I'd had a, had a go on a couple of others that, that hadn't really worked <laughs> out. Clarinet, saxophone, piano lessons. I got thrown out of piano lessons after about a month. Whoa. For for uh, for calling the teacher fat bum when I was about four years old, so uh, so uh, that did that did really work out. But I, I'm 
from a musical family my dad was a touring musician and and things like that so it was always around it was I didn't really realize I was becoming a musician growing up I guess mm-hmm. um it was just you I was learning to read and write and draw and play music and it kind of was all lumped into the same thing and it wasn't until a friend of mine sort of invited me to watch his band rehearse in our in our sort of school lunch break mm-hmm and I went home and I thought, oh, I've got a great idea for a song for them. And they were playing pop punk and new metal and stuff. And this would have been in like 2000 or something. Yeah, the good old days. And so I was like, yeah, I had a great oh, oh, a great idea for a pop punk song. <laughs> and I just picked up my dad's guitar and thought, well, I've got this part in my head. Could it could it work on a guitar? And I sort of picked it up and haven't really haven't really put it down. But um, yeah, so that, that sort of. That's sort of how that happened. I was into all of that stuff for mm-hmm. for a while until uh, till Money for Nothing by Dire Straits came on the radio when I was in the car somewhere, and I remembered hearing that album as a kid and went, "Wow, I've, I've got to dig this back out." Yeah, and uh, yeah, like I guess started taking it a bit more seriously after that. <laughs> oh, yeah, so you have to be good. Yeah, well, that sounds like hard. That sounds hard. It sounds like I need to practice or something. I don't yeah, know. I, mean, I, like, <laughs> I stuck with the power chords myself, so you know I don't really know what I'm doing. But oh, there's time and a place for all of it. That's true. That's very true. I reckon power power chords have probably pulled in more money in record sales than about any other guitar technique. So I don't think you're doing anything wrong there. That is a fair point. I think you're probably right about that. The power chord is a. Uh, it's got its name for a reason, right? It's got a lot of power. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you did Dire Straits, and then did you just start going down a wormhole of of practicing technique, or was it that specific, like trying to nail Knopfler <laughs> stuff? Like, what happened? No, it wasn't really anything. It's, it's, that, that sounds all far too deliberate. It was just, I've got a guitar, and I'm going to play it as much as possible. How does he make that noise? What's going on there? Mm-hmm. I guess I was practicing technique, but not very deliberately. Right. More I was just like, obsessed with uh, just obsessed with the instrument and making all the noises, really, kind of like every, all of us are right. to some extent. Right. Um, but I've always been a bit of a, a nerd as well, so that kind of you know half of that's what you're doing with with your hands, and the rest of it's just as important what you're sort of plugging it into and what that does to the sound of the instrument and gets you closer to what you've got in your head. Right, because that'll totally influence the input, you know, the output. It's a feedback loop. The whole thing ties together and vibrates your bones, and then you respond in a different way. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's and that's the, probably the cool thing that I liked about Knopfler as well was he he plays the whole thing like it's an instrument. It doesn't matter what what he kind of plugs his guitar into. It doesn't seem to ever get in the way of it sounding like a guitar. So I quite like I quite like that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, don't want my gear to do it for me, but I want it to help. Yeah. Sometimes I let it do it for me. It depends on the mood <laughs> and how many beverages I've had. <laughs> yeah, how, how, how late in the evening it is. That's right. Just let it self-oscillate and just sit here for a minute. You know, that's what I got to yeah, do. Yeah, well, well, you go and get your next beverage, isn't it? Exactly. Absolutely. So you got obsessed with the instrument. Some point along the line, you got really deep in the weeds, apparently, on the gear side of things. Because I don't think you you heard Knopfler and then immediately applied to Origin. So how did that happen? Um, well, I don't know, really. It's just kind of, it all gradually happens the more you get into guitar, I think. But um, I like I mean, like I say, I was in a musical household. So as soon as 
as soon as I started taking music seriously, my dad helped helped set up like a very modest home studio and kind of begged and borrowed a few bits of outboard gear off of his mates and things like that. So there were, you know, things to tinker with. And I bought one of those. You remember the Digitech pod ripoff thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And well, I, I bought one of those out of the sort of, please get rid of this bargain bin at my local <laughs> guitar shop for sort of 49 quid. But, but it was great because at, at that time, you either turned an amp on or or played acoustic guitar. So I had something to practice with headphones and it had effects that I could get the hang of what they were all doing when I was 14. So it's just gradual tinkering over the years, isn't it? And then got into music production and did that at university, ended up working in a studio for a bit. Oh, wow. And it was while I was doing that, I had a, an old school friend of mine who's a fantastic musician. Uh, am I allowed to name drop him? Absolutely. Check out the acoustic guitar music of Rohan Burt. That's Burt spelled B-Y-R-T. Okay. He's, he's, an old, he's an old friend of mine, and he, he was working at Orange Amps at the time and just let me know about a, a you know very junior sort of repair job that turned up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'd, I don't, don't know if I know enough about electronics to get this, but I'll, impl- uh, I'll apply so they remember me when something appropriate comes along. Right. Happened to get the job and learn a load of stuff sort of, you know, on the clock with with them really and just got deeper down the down the gear rabbit hole and ended up getting into doing the gear demos and checking at various sort of live events and things and mm-hmm. getting into the R and D process and then yeah, heard heard about the heard about the job at Origin and it was sort of everything I'd been learning all kind of packaged into a job. So I thought, yeah, why not? And here we are. About what time was this? What year did that happen? Oh, this was, oddly enough, um, 2020. So Oh, wow. Okay. T- tail-, tail end of 2020, bang in the middle of the first real you-must-not-leave-the-house-level corona panic. Right. And, yeah, managed to managed to change jobs in it. Which is pretty unusual. Yeah, that's a. That, I guess that, that's, that's weird just, timing. <laughs> just tells you how well the guitar industry was doing over that year, I guess. Um, because I think you know a lot of people weren't anywhere near as lucky as to be able to change jobs at that time. It was kind of hang on to what you've got and hope for the best. But yeah, it's absolutely insane year for the guitar industry. Just everybody sitting at home with nothing to do and spare money from not commuting and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It good, was. A- good, it was a weird two years for sure. Now it feels in, you know, in talking to various people throughout the industry, it almost feels like we're, we're back to like 2019 where it's like, Oh, we got to be a little scrappier now. And Oh wait, we used to have to really fight for this uh, in a, in a different way. Not, not in an aggressive way. The guitar industry has always been fairly friendly, but like, it's like, Oh, this, the tide has shifted. People are not sitting at home anymore. <laughs> they, well, they're and, back. Uh, like belts are tightening as well, aren't they? At the moment, and yeah, it's definitely not being handed to us on a plate quite in the same way as it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think a lot of people have got into guitar or back into guitar, and whilst they might not be kind of splurging as much money on on gear as they were then, we've still got some new new faces kind of into it and 
want, wanting to equip themselves with all sorts of different stuff. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've always been of the mindset that this stuff is very cyclical, uh, you know, and especially with, you know, in regards to the music that's playing currently, you know, I think back to like my dad's generation was a very guitar heavy generation. And then the generation right after him was a lot more hip hop focused, you know, and electronic and pop. And then in the, you know, late nineties, early 2000s, you know, it kind of came, well, I, sh- I kind of skipped one there. Then grunge happened. Then there was another lull and it became all about hip hop again. Then late 90s, early 2000s, the whole warp Tour thing happened and it, that blew the guitar up again. Then it seemed to kind of have another little lull where people were questioning, like right when I got into the industry, actually, people were like, oh no, is guitar dying? And then we've had this other massive shot in the arm with however many hundreds of thousands of new players were created during that time. And I think we're going to, you know, kind of see that tail off until those players mature and get to the point where they're on the gear page researching overdrives. And then we're going <laughs> to, that's kind of what I'm predicting for the future. I hope that's accurate. Um, I don't, I don't think you're far wrong. I mean, yeah, definitely. It's, it, you, you hear it every 20 years that guitar's dead and it just sort of hibernates instead, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, something will come along sort of culturally. And I think in the early 2000s, you're saying about the Warped Tour, it's basically Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. Yes, absolutely. Just And all of a sudden, everybody loves pop punk and new metal, including myself. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, people just throw money into it until it implodes. And then something a bit more kind of artistically credible comes along <laughs> and endures the same process. Yep. Yep. And, and then we're seeing it also just in popular music in general. Like, I wouldn't have expected pop punk to, you know, have this resurgence in popularity. I never I never thought that My Chemical Romance would be filling stadiums. You know, they 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 were a solid touring band when they quit. And now that they're back, they're literally just filling stadiums. It's kind of weird to see. It's awesome to see, but it tells you that the interest is there. Well, I mean, that's that's bang in the middle of my sort of musical generation. And I guess I'm just getting to the age where I'm starting to think about having a midlife crisis. <laughs> or at least, or at least like just getting into the sort of nostalgia age. So I can totally see how it happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people get into their mid-30s, they've got a, got a bit of disposable income, maybe have definitely come to terms with the fact that they're not part of youth culture anymore. So you just kind of regress, <laughs> don't you? And I think that's great. But in, but in doing so, you've got people, you know, sort of, my age in charge of things that people will see in charge of radio tv and whatever that's true and that gets all of this stuff that's nostalgia for them out to people who are too young to remember it the first time around and off it goes again oh that's a really good point yeah we are in that generation right and i'm you know i've been feeling nostalgia t- like pretty hard for the last five-ish years you know in in my life and then this is kind of off subject but i was listening to this uh this lifting podcast and and I was, well, I was exercising and they were kept saying, you know, older lifters, you know, from 30, 35 to, you know, 47, you, know, you need to pay attention. I'm like, wait, older. Am I an older? <laughs> <Hang> on <a laughs> minute. I, hold on. What are, you, what are you talking about? Am I an older lifter now? This feels weird to think about. But um, yeah, it, it is. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's weird coming to terms with that, right? Yeah. When you get to the age um, where commentators in sports, think it's notable that somebody's 
hasn't retired yet. Right. Then <laughs> but that's that's when you know you that's when you know you're in trouble. Yeah. Or like if you're watching the X Factor and you're like, I'm I'm much older than the people that are in the like too old for the normal category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> well, you've just got to embrace it, I suppose, haven't you? And I think that's a lot uh, a lot of what's going on with these sort of gear purchases. Like look at the amount of tri-choruses and oh. things like that that have sort of sprung back up. Absolutely. Some of these uh, some of these guitar YouTubers, um, this Australian guy called Leon Todd, who's a great YouTuber, springs to mind. And his one of his main things is just like digging out all of these old great eighties rack units. Oh yeah. And yeah. And just showing you showing you what you can do with them. Like he's a modeler guy and he he does all these tutorials on fractals and stuff like that. But his his home studio is just about the sort of twelve U rack and every single thing in there is just an eighties preamp. <laughs> I love that. As I look down at my nineteen eighties DOD R eight eighty rack delay that's right in front of me. So yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, I'm I'm looking down at a wet dry wet pedal board. <laughs> we yes. we are the same. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So when you took the job at Origin, I, I imagine you probably were a lot more familiar with the company than than I was. But what is the origin of Origin? Like, where did it come from? How did it get to where it is now? Well, so I mean, like a lot of these things, it all all starts with a man in a shed trying to solve a problem that somebody hasn't solved yet. And the man in question is a guy called Simon Keats. And he he used to be well, he's sort of done various bits of pretty kind of high-level electronic engineering and most notably worked at uh, Vox and he's worked with Korg and, you know, st- studied it all formally. He's not like some of these guys who've kind of picked it up here and there. Um, so, so he knows his onions. Um, and he's also a, an absolute nut for kind of 70s Southern rock. Mm-hmm. So particularly the Allman Brothers Band and Little Feet. And the, the the story is basically back in early 2010s, he just happened to be doing a sort of like freelance repair job on a couple of 1176 studio compressors. Mm-hmm. And being a, a Little Feet nerd as he is, he kind of went, oh, right, so the Lyle George slide sound is two of these running in series. Okay. So once he'd finished fixing them up, he he hooked it up in this way, and you know he's got like quite a good collection of old amps and interesting guitars and things. So he was trying to trying to put together this kind of Lyle George dream rig. Obviously, realised it sounded totally awesome, and then went, "Well, why the hell does nobody make this in a pedal?" Right. So he built the first Origin pedal, which is called the Slide Rig, and it was just an absolute bang on replica of an 1176 studio compressor twice in series. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize the in slide this, rig in, came first. Okay. I think everybody yeah, thinks the Cali think, came first, but it's it's the slide rig. Yeah, I don't think by much. I mean, I don't know the precise dates of all of this stuff, but the slide rig was definitely the... That's that's when the light bulb went on above his head. It's like, I can do this. And, and at the time as well, like there's a few, there's a few decent uh, guitar compressors around now. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm here to say that our one's the best one, but there's like plenty of plenty of options of of good stuff. But in those days, there wasn't so much. I think the Keeley one might have just been around, but other than that, it's kind of a Dynacomp or a Boss compression sustainer, and same thing that had been around for years. Mm-hmm. So at the at the time, it was like it was a pretty big deal that somebody had taken 
taken the effort to create that quality of compressor when it's generally a pretty unglamorous guitar pedal it's not right it's, it's not it's not a sort of like christmas morning excitement pedal for a lot of people i i happen to be really into compressors and was before i was at origin but most people they just kind of go oh that thing that funk and country guys use right right and, it adds some sparkle it adds some you know some something i don't think a lot of players don't really know even what it does yeah it's just like i mean with a lot of a lot of this guitar gear stuff is sort of um sort of accepted wisdom isn't it? it's like i know you're meant to have one and it's better somehow but i couldn't tell you why <laughs> and and so i think part of simon's whole mo in the first place was making one that was good enough that guitarists who didn't know about compressors and had been disappointed in the past could actually appreciate why it was better mm-hmm. and then people who did actually have a sort of professional understanding of compressors were being respected because you know guitar guitar compressor usually is just like how much compression how loud right and any anybody that's been in the studio is just going to go well that's that's it's not enough going on you need all of the knobs to get it to do what you want it to do so I think so shortly after the slide rig, Simon obviously cottoned on that he had this this super accurate 1176 circuit. So he did one that had all the knobs on it. And then, you know, as, as you can do when you're a kind of man in the shed operation, building all this stuff on your own and kind of to order and constantly improving and innovating and that sort of thing. There's a few various kind of permutations of it that are all floating around um, and as I understand, commanding some pretty ludicrous, almost clon level prices yeah. on the second hand market if you've got the right one. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then obviously the demand gets such that you've, you've got to start making things a bit more sensibly. So, right. You can't. So, I, like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've seen this with my friend Chris from Benson Amps. You know, I, I've been there you know kind of watching over his shoulder since he he started on his i mean from his repair you know his repair tech spot in the shop he worked in to now having multiple shops with lots of employees and watching how he's had to evolve his process i totally understand what you're talking about i think people kind of get funny about it though mass production is sort of a bit of a dirty word in in guitar gear and I've never really quite understood why, as long as you, as long as you don't fall victim to some of the some of the evils of mass production. If you know, as, as long as your circuit designs are as good and your components are as good, having them built in a way that's more repeatable, is, it improves things. Yeah, I mean, we. It's, the, it's only when people try and chop cost out of it that you get problems. Exactly. The thing is, is like. We we are really weird about that stuff, but what? Who popularized the electric guitar? Leo Fender. All of his designs were built around the idea of being able to mass produce them. But yet we have this sort of mystique in our brain about, you know, pre-CVS, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I love all that stuff too. I'm not hating on it. But I've played some pre-CVS Fenders that were not very good. So, you know, it's not mass production isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like you said, it's only when you're trying to reach the lowest common denominator that it becomes problematic. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, but I think there's people, people love to kind of preserve as much of the mysticism as possible. Don't they? 
and it's interesting you say about Leo Fender because now that's considered to be the sort of benchmark of guitar tradition mm-hmm. and something that's always been the old way that any improvement on it or deviation from it is kind of unnecessary and to some people sort of heresy. Yes. But at the time, people went, this is insane. What on earth is this thing? That's not a real guitar. Go, go and buy a big Gibson jazz box. Right. Which exactly. is kind of funny because I, I personally, um, my next guitar purchase might be a Strandberg. I think the guy's a genius. I think his designs are really cool. And the 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 sort of the people that don't like those say the same things about that that everybody said about Fender in the fifties. Mm-hmm. But then tell me I should just play a strap. I don't really see what the difference is. <laughs> no, it's pretty much the same thing. It really is. I mean, he, he Strandberg, I, I've wanted to get him on this show, but like you can tell he's just kind of went back to the drawing board. What does this guitar need to do? The first time I played one, I looked at that neck and I was like, there's absolutely no way that's going to be comfortable. It's got angles in it. How could that possibly? It is though, isn't it? It's awesome. They feel great. I, I had totally a preconceived notion thank you jason fuzzmonger hello jason he's a mod in the tone mob facebook group he's been around for a very long time couldn't do without him uh but yeah he brought me one to to play and it was like this thing's brilliant it really is i totally get it yeah it's just like uh, refreshing i'm not saying everybody should like them that's part of the fun is that we disagree about this sort of stuff but it's just a nice (laughs) reminder that it doesn't all have to be the same Mm-hmm. which is what like, probably brings me neatly back to, to where we were. And I think Simon Keats of Origin is, is a bit like that as well. Like even though he's kind of, his inspirations for what gear it is he wants to design are often kind of quite backward looking because that's when all the good noises were made and that's where his music tastes are. He's very much about sort of finding his own way to do things. So rather than the way a lot of the the pedal industry is structured of like oh what what tweaks can we make to this design and then how's that going to end up sounding is he sort of starts at the other end of i know how i want this to sound and i'll do just about anything to go about <laughs> achieving that um which is which is kind of evident I, d- I don't know if it's a bit early to be getting onto that new housing and green overdrive but it's certainly it's certainly evident in how the design for that's turned out. Hi, I'm Vincent, and I'm here to talk about the Merrick X. My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations and 33 banks. And something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my talkie?
How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than two bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the Gear Exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the Gear Exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not a very big tube screamer guy. Like, I'm not, that's not my go-to. I, I've tended to be a guy that played into a louder, cleaner amp and got a lot of my dirt for my pedals. And for me, tube screamers don't shine that well in that context, generally speaking. Unless they're, you know, pushing a different pedal. You know, that's that's how I've always used them in the past. But this pedal helped me realize some of the things about the original design that don't work for me because I was able to dial those out. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's dive into that a little bit since I have a fair bit of experience with it now and can actually speak to it. Well, I mean, the, the probably the funniest thing about it is if you actually have the back off of the pedal, it is not a tube screamer. OK, I haven't about, done that it's yet, got about, surprisingly. It's got about five. To, well, I mean. You know, don't try this at home because it voids your warranty. Yes, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but just like um, like just take it from me, I guess there's about five times as many parts in there mm-hmm. because the pedal was built around the adaptive circuitry, which is like the kind of poster boy feature yeah, of the pedal. Definitely. And so, in order to to make it work the way it does, the priority was get the adaptive circuitry working, and I'll explain what that's doing in a minute. And then build the necessary parts around that that allowed us to work back to it doing what a tube screamer does. Okay. Um. So, so like the thing. I mean, you you say you're not really a big fan of tube screamers, and you know, not not everybody should be. Um. But they they do a thing that I think is probably proven to be quite popular, considering how many of them there are. Absolutely. Out there. Yep. And, you know, the idea is if you're going to clatter your amp 
with a load of signal. Um, it helps to roll a load of bass off so you're not throwing signal into your amp that's going to make it flood out and fart out and sound generally disgusting. And also, you don't want the high end to get fizzy, so you roll bottom end off, you roll top end off, and you push the remaining mid-range into the clipping stage of the pedal and into the front end of your amp. Um, that's what the mid-hump thing is. Mm-hmm. And it's it's basically awesome if you want to get that kind of edge of breakup amp into like thick overdriven blues lead tone type of situation. The problem comes when you're trying to kind of do incremental shades of drive in between. And I think this is how people end up stacking about five different pedals that are all barely kind of tickling the gain control yeah. and <laughs> just like adding a DB here and a DB there and stuff like that. And I mean, it's sort of fun and it's, you know, it's a good time messing about with all of that in your bedroom and trying to kind of craft the perfect, perfect thing. But it's also a total nightmare when all you really want to do is just like play dynamically and get on with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, the, the old school way is you just turn your amp up, to where where you need to be at full tilt and then back it off with the guitar volume but then if you're doing that you don't get that nice change of tonality by having that mid push so there's this trade-off between like do i want to just have the amp roaring and clean up with the volume control or right hand playing dynamics and do all of that the, the way dad did it right or do i want to have all of these kind of different increments of tone shaping and have specific utilitarian devices to you know emphasize different parts of the sound and serve different purposes and they've both got their merits but combining the two is a real pain yes so where you've where you've got that top and bottom roll off on the tube screamer to leave you with that mid hump to get you that lead tone you haven't got to roll your guitar too far back before that tone shaping becomes a real nuisance mm-hmm and as you sort of drop out of clipping and get to, you know, back close to your clean tone where you really wanted that low end and that high end sparkle, you just have this kind of funny little nasal thing in the middle that sounds a bit like you're playing your guitar down a telephone. So <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's a perfect description. And 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 like I think every, everybody can agree that for that certain thing, a tube screamer with your guitar on full beans doing the thing it does is great, but what Simon was up to with the Halcyon wasn't about changing that. It was about retaining that and also providing it with that extra dynamic sort of interaction. So with the adapt switch on the Halcyon, when you engage that, when your guitar's on full and the pedal's overdriving, it sounds pretty much just like a real TS-808. But as soon as you start rolling the guitar volume back and the pedal stops dropping out of clipping, it reintroduces that bass and treble until the pedal completely cleans up and you've got your bottom end and top end back. And it sounds pretty much like it did before you turned the pedal on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's where the kind of genius of it is. But I mean... I'm not exaggerating when I say it took many months of head scratching to get it to do all of the stuff correctly, have that interaction, sound exactly like a TS-808, clip like the old diodes that you can't get anymore, and 
all of all of this other stuff. It's a real feat of engineering, to be honest, for something that just ultimately is like, oh yeah, it's a tube screw with a switch on. But there's there's a lot going on. <laughs> so the the adaptive part, and I, I have a few questions about it. Some of which I don't know if you want to get into or not. So just stop me if, uh, we'll, if not. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. So is that something that's done digitally, or is that a full analog circuit? Oh no, no, there is nothing digital in any Origin pedal except in the two uh, sort of amp recreation pedals that have built-in modulation, mm -hmm. the the tap tempo that you can control the modulation with is is done with a with a digital chip. Right. The, every uh, and those signal path of those amps is completely an, uh, those pedals is completely analog, and all the other pedals are completely analog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I so, wasn't yeah, this, sure this if is... the if similar to the tap tempo, how that's obviously a digital feature that controls analog devices. I wasn't sure if the adapt mode had something similar, but it's all analog. That's oh, no, very interesting. It's, yes, it's all. It's, uh, I mean, I won't for, for two reasons. I won't go into exactly how it's doing it. One, because it's a bit of a secret source, and two, I suspect it'll be incredibly boring for about ninety nine percent of your <laughs> listeners. But, um, but the the short answer is. Yeah, it's it's some clever analog trickery that just kind of yeah, all all kind of um, interweaves with each other and works quite effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It works. It works so well. It's really it. You know, I've heard of things not exactly like this, but things that claim to adapt to your playing that don't necessarily track as well as you'd like, or they don't necessarily. It feels a bit uh, a bit less smooth for lack of a better term. It's almost like there's notches in between the settings instead of having that smooth character that this has. So I, I suspected that was the case, which is why I wanted to ask that question. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that probably the pedals you're talking about, and I'm not asking you to name names because that wouldn't be fair, but um, I'd imagine that that's probably something done in the digital domain. Some of it is for always, sure. It's always yeah. going to be a bit less natural, I think, because it's got to kind of take a look at your guitar signal, do some thinking about it, and then apply that to some stuff mm -hmm. that's got some limitations in, in resolution. Right. Um, it's, I, I guess it's a bit like sort of two racing cars, one, one of which has got sort of very clever traction control and a very clever kind of, uh, you know, paddle shift gearbox, and the other one that just kind of works. Right, and is designed in such a way that it doesn't need all that stuff. Right, so we're like, we're kind of trying to be the latter, <laughs> like a really high performance, but with the stick, like <laughs> definitely with the manual yeah. transmission, but a very good manual transmission. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I suppose that's quite fitting as we're a British company, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question is: Do you see the adaptive circuitry making its way into other designs? Certainly, everybody on the internet does, mm -hmm. or or at least a handful of people on the internet that are kind of badgering us quite relentlessly in the comments sections of all the YouTube videos and <laughs> gear page threads and stuff like that. Um, why don't you make this? Why don't you make that? Could you put it in this? How about that? And the the thing is, because it's because it's a piece of technology on its own, it certainly could be implemented into a number of designs mm -hmm. but not overnight right because 
the the sort of adaptive part is 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 one half of it and then how to make that piece of circuitry then behave in all of the ways that the pedal you're kind of going after does Mm -hmm. that's that's where actually a lot of the difficulty in designing the house scene came about was okay it's almost like a tube screamer but it needs to be exactly like a tube screamer when you want it to be yes and and you know so the so the knobs do the same things in the same places as well so tube screamer users can kind of transfer their favorite sounds over onto it like we wanted it to do all of that as well yeah so yeah it's it's a it's it's a it's a it's it's a real surreal head scratcher and also like whichever whichever pedal we were to apply it to is going to have its own kind of clipping structure and and things like that that that's going to have an effect on how that behaves with the adaptive circuitry and things but don't worry we are certainly not ignoring <laughs> the requests <laughs> but like um I haven't, I haven't done an awful lot about it yet. <laughs> the The first one that came to my mind, and I'm partially biased because this is one of my favorites, you know, quote unquote, standard guitar circuits of all time. I immediately thought, like, what could this do in a rat type situation? You know, because bone stock rats from various generations, they, they all pretty much do the same thing. And for me and a lot of people, they pretty much need to be ran full out most of the time. But the one that changed my tune on that was the 1981 DRV, because that's a, it's based on a rat, but it's way more versatile than any rat I've ever played. And I immediately thought, like, what would something that had this kind of range with the adaptive circuitry sound like? It might be like the greatest dirt pedal of all time in my head. That's what I immediately went to. Was like, oh man, that would be. I bet that would could be really cool. But I'm also like. I know just enough about electronics to be dangerous and that's about it. <laughs> so. the, the thing, I guess the thing with, with something like a rack, cause it's a higher gain and a hard clipping circuit is you're, you're likely to be fighting against noise. Absolutely. A bit more. Yeah, definitely. So, so I'm definitely not going to make any guarantees that it would work because the thing with opening back up the, the treble is you open, you open up where, where, white noise has been filtered out yep and that's also part of the reason that that some of these pedals have the voicing that they do it's because you know back in the sort of rough and ready rigs of the late 70s things were just kind of noisy and you were probably up against that quite a lot yes so anything you could do to mitigate the amount of line noise there was with like a cranked 800 was 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 going to be a good thing so if if there was a rat version i'd be concerned that you might sort of unleash a bit more noise than you'd like to by reintroducing that top end Mm -hmm. that makes some sense that that doesn't mean it couldn't be done but it would you know it's it's certainly something that's very well suited to to lower gain Mm -hmm. overdrives for two reasons one because of the noise issue i've just described and secondly because they're more likely to be used by people who play dynamically that's (laughs) that's a very good point yes like if you're thinking about like oh yeah i like kicking a rat on and just mashing out loads of enormous 90s chords um with with the greatest will in the world i don't think kind of delicate dynamic subtlety is usually a priority I think that's that's fair to say. <laughs> I also have to recognize I'm really weird because I will, I will use a rat 
dynamically, but it's often for like swelling into things or, or, you know, things of that nature. I play really weird. So like a lot of my thoughts and requests are sometimes like they don't make a lot of sense for like blues, certainly not blues players or anything like that. So, but yeah, well, rats are more versatile pedal than people give it credit for. That's true. I've been messing around with one because, um, one one of the things we've been trying to get around to doing for ages is doing some some demo clips for for the Origin Instagram of various different kind of well known pedals mm-hmm. stacking into the revival drive range to demonstrate their capabilities sort of amp recreations. Yeah, because I think when you can you can tell people until the cows come home this will behave exactly like a real amp if you treat it like a real amp. People, people want proof. So we've kind of all scrambled around and everybody's brought in various kind of famous pedals that they like. And I've, I've kind of got this box of stuff I need to get around to um, just making a load of demo clips with it. And a rat is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I've actually been running it low again and and clattering the input of a revival drive. And it's absolutely glorious. Oh, man. I bet that is nice. <laughs> But it's like the squish of it as well. It's just a really rewarding thing to play because of its shortcomings. Yeah, sometimes not everything needs to be fixed, right? Sometimes the the little quote unquote flaws are what we're looking for. Like that's why well, there's you, so many fuzz face variants. Yeah, they all have well, something exactly. weird. I'm, that's that's probably a pretty good uh, pretty good revival drive segue if you want to get into any of that because that was the kind of um, the the real. The real mission behind behind that pedal was you get a lot of these amp in a box type of overdrives and preamps that are going after very accurately recreated sort of cranked plexi or you know vintage amp sounds. And Simon, being the the finicky guy that he is, just was underwhelmed by a lot of them because they didn't have these just sort of like missing intricacies of old amps. And that's that's the whole deal with the revival drive. Like you've got two different channels on it that simulate the silicon or valve rectifier sag. Yeah. And then you've got the the ghost control on it that reintroduces mains hum that doesn't quite get filtered out by an old amp's struggling power <laughs> supply when you're pushing it beyond the the limit and it's so nerdy that you can switch whether the mains hums 60 hertz american mains hum or 50 hertz european <laughs> mains hum I depending on whether you're trying to like do allman brothers ghost notes or you know eric clapton blues breakers ghost notes mm-hmm. but but the thing is it's and it's those kind of like funny little details and problems that actually give a lot of this stuff its character. It's the stuff that kind of glues together a mix once you get a few layers of these stuff. You do want the sort of wibbly-wobbly fizzy bits kind of mm-hmm. poking through and creating a bit of motion in a, in a sustained chord. And I think there's a lot of... So certainly in, 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 in sort of modern rock music, there's, there's a, real, a real strive towards kind of clinical perfection. And for, for certain things... It works brilliantly, but you do occasionally think, "I want some of the funny bits back." Oh yeah, I want some want some character injected back into it, whether it's the the sounds or or the playing or 
whatever there's a lot of there's a lot of charm in 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 people getting things wrong and if you can do the sort of got wrong bits of classic valve amps in a controlled way that's not going to be on fire or get you hefty repair bills it's quite a rewarding thing to to play with well and that's that's something that i've had to kind of i've always known but i've had to reintroduce into my own playing lately because i've been captain tube amp like my whole as soon as i found out what tube amps were i plugged into an orange tiny terror years and years ago and went oh yes this is what i've been missing i see now and so that's been my whole thing lately i've been playing especially with uh, trying to create more and more content i've been playing a lot of direct uh mostly the benson amps uh amp sims that are out now by Mixwave. I think they're absolutely fantastic and I've I really love playing those things. And then the other night I was like, you know, it's been like probably probably like a month since you actually played a real amp. This is really weird. And I plugged in a stereo rig in, into my my real Benson and my Silk Tone and I was like, "Oh, uh, <laughs> no, no, they still don't quite have it all yet, you know, and some of that is the imperfections and the weird things that that come through. Uh, but yeah, it's I had to re- I, it felt weird that I had to remind myself of those weird little quirks, you know, even after just a short break from playing tube amps. Well, I mean, I, I completely agree because I, I love valve amps as well and also find them just hugely impractical. And that doesn't mean I suddenly want to change my entire approach to playing guitar, which I think like going to a modeling rig sort of can make you do. It just really kind of makes you throw out your old workflow and become a modeler guy. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to become a modeler guy, not because I've got anything against modelers, but just because I'm quite happy doing just doing things how I do them. I like pedal boards and amps. They're fun. Well, I just, I like, I just, just like things the way I, I like them, but I just don't want them to be as loud, hot, heavy, or expensive. So <laughs> That's a very good point. Hello there. I'd like to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chaseless Audio Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chaseless and Goodhertz. It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts that come with every compressed audio. You're hearing it right now. All the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my playing dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about Lossy, I invite you to head over to chaseblintsaudio.com. I think you're going to like what you find. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. 
Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. So so I think like even though the, all the Revival Drive stuff came about before I joined the company. I almost feel like Simon designed it for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because I like, you know, old school tones and fairly simple rigs and things like that. And I'm also, probably from being an acoustic player as well, I'm quite fussy about dynamics and things. Mm-hmm. And I find plugging into plugging into modelers and, and things, like I can I can feel the difference in my right hand. I can feel a sort of lack of immediacy and something. I don't, I don't know whether it's, this is just me or whether you get this experience as well. When you're playing through your real rig, it feels like the action of plucking the string physically makes the speaker move. It makes you feel like you're playing the speaker. Well, that and I mean, even though I'm playing through like a decent set of like eight inch monitors and a subwoofer and everything when I'm when I'm playing direct, it's still it still doesn't like it literally doesn't vibrate my bones the same way you know it's not it's just not the same experience and it does it feels even though i would tell you that this plugin i mean this and this plugin is brilliant and i will not ever stop using it it's phenomenal but like plugging into the real deal again to remind myself of why i fell in love with that sound in the first place was like very eye-opening, you know, after even just a brief period away. You know, it just, it does. It responds differently. It feels like you're actually, you know, the tip of your finger is going directly to the sound source. You know, it's yeah. it, it's so much, so much more, I don't know. It gets in, gets in your heart. It just feels good. You're like part of the process. It's not drive-by-wire. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great uh, analogy. Back to cars. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'd, I'd, I'd probably do that again. Are you a um, big car guy? <laughs> um, not as uh, not as much as I'd like to be able to afford to be. I, well, but, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just just default to it for some reason. But um, like, in mod- modeler guys will definitely tell you, like, oh, you'll get used to it, or it sounds the same when it's recorded, or whatever. And I sort of think that might be true. I kind of don't care. I like the experience of being connected to the to the rig I'm playing through and I also want it to sound exactly like stuff that I know I'm not allowed to use. Well, so continuing so, the, so the sort of the, like the revival drive stuff's quite a good middle ground yeah. for that because it you know it has has the kind of as, as long as you don't need 10 million sounds and I don't think anybody really does no matter how much they try and convince you otherwise. What? Sure like, I do. No. Like I I I'd gig with a great sounding amp if I could. Um, I can't, so I need it quieter. Also, I want the effects after it. Mm-hmm. So, plonk, on it goes on the pedal board, and we've got you know got a rig that sounds sounds like a good amp in a studio. Feels nice to play, so I'm actually excited when doing it, and it's it's practical. I'm not going to get you thrown off of a function gig. When you're playing, I, I did. I had another analogy that I wanted to go back to, but before we do that, when you're playing. A gig like that, like you just described, are you plugged directly to front of house, or do you have a monitor that you bring with you, or how do you do that? I um, like, 
I kind of quite like designing solutions to things. So okay. what I've got is um, a custom 212 that's got a power amp mounted in it. Ah, so it looks like it looks like a high power tweed twin, but it's actually a hundred watt power amp with a pair of Celestian Redbacks in it. Oh, that's cool. That's a great solution. So, so, so my my cab sim on my pedal board is 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 a is a, and I think it might be a cream back, but they basically sound pretty similar. So uh, that goes to front of house, but I I get the amp on stage. Nice. So you get that. Feeling. And if I'm feeling ostentatious, it, this happens in a in a wet dry wet rig configuration. But. <laughs> Um, unsurprisingly, I don't get asked to do that that often. I don't understand. I feel like people should ask you to constantly to do that. That's the way. Well, the, the thing is, it's like, sorry, just two minor gripes about wet, dry, wet rigs. Okay, here we One, go. They sound awesome, and people like going to gigs that sound awesome. So why not let people sound awesome? Two, if your band had a, a trumpet player and a sax player, Nobody would have any problem suddenly having two more channels on the mixing console. Nope. Not at all. They'd just be like, cool. That, that's what your so, band has, so that's what we're going to do. I, I, although, to be fair, I, I, I reckon guitarists are probably part of the problem because I reckon for a lot, of, a lot of soundies, their experience with stereo rigs will be people turned up with them and didn't know what they were doing, so there was like harm and level mismatches and all kinds of chaos. Well, that is fair. I I pretty much always play stereo, so it would be very upsetting for me to have to play play mono. These are the epitome of first world problems. But uh, they, I mean, that's what we had to discuss, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's a stereo. I feel like is still kind of underrated. I feel like most players haven't played stereo, and once I did, I was like, I don't feel like I can. I don't feel like I can go back. Of course. I'm spoiled. I don't have to go back. I can play 16 amps if I want to. Like that's that's just the the luxury of being in the shred shed. But uh, yeah, stereo is a is certainly a a game changer when you feel it and and you have a good setup. It's it's the way of the future. Ever, ever played wet dry wet? Uh, not recently. It's been several years since I messed with wet dry wet. I'm usually just straight stereo, but what do you like about wet, dry, wet? Um, sort of two things, really. Um, one, I, I I do songwriting and produce demos of stuff, and when I'm tracking guitar, it helps because if you if you're tracking a stereo part with the with the aim of having stereo effects in your mix, if you want your stereo effects to to be in the right place in the mix, your guitar ends up always panned centrally. Mm -hmm. And if you want to start panning the guitar around, all you can really do is start panning the effects, in which case it doesn't become stereo enough anymore. Or you affect the, the balance of the two channels to pull the guitar over to one side or the other. And then you skew the, the balance of the stereo effects. You just end up you know, if, if essentially, if you want to pan something hard left, you end up just muting the right channel and having the left channel. Right. And, and then if you want to double track that part, you end up muting the left channel and having the right channel. Whereas with a wet, dry, wet rig, you can track up a part with stereo effects, pan the dry part to one side, 
you still got your delay and reverb in stereo. And then when you double track that part, you just track it dry. Okay. So you've got your two dry parts pan hard left and right, sounding like a big double track thing. And then your stereo effects mix just fed from one of those, but occupying the right part of the stereo field. So it's it's a lot easier to to kind of figure out what to do with your mix after the event. That makes sense. And 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 you don't just have to have like lots of layers of effects that you've just built up on top of each other because you don't really need to send both of your double track parts to to your effects bus. You just need something there to make it sound big and keep the rest as simple and clear as possible. And the other thing that's cool about it is you don't have to agree with the front of house engineer about your effects mix. So <laughs> you you know if you want to just sound like the ed the, the ed the edge the ed sex with, that's the american version wanna, yeah if you, <laughs> you want to sound like the edge having sex with god in a nebula on stage then fine and then the sound guy can just turn down your effects balance and tell you to get over yourself but um all the other way around if you have sort of dialed it in in your bedroom where you can hear everything really clearly and then once it gets into your front of house mix the effects just disappear your sound guy can just boost the effects channels up and you're there so it's it's kind of useful yeah i mean it part of it's probably because i just i i'm just a glorified you know basement nerd where i'm just playing by myself all the time not live i don't play live i just record and and do nonsense out here all by myself so you know when i when i'm recording stereo you know, it, I'll I'll have I kind of think of and I think I described this on a podcast that you listened to, if I remember correctly. I kind of use a stereo delay as like I think of it more as like the center of everything. I usually put all my dirt before it, generally, and then mm-hmm. afterwards is where it gets really crazy, and I'll run into multiple different modulations and reverbs, and sometimes other delays on each section of that output into generally into real amps that are mic'd up. And so when I'm mixing them in the box, I usually will actually hard pan them because that's how I experience them in the room. And there's so much going on <laughs> that it just fills up all of the space. Um, I don't always hard pan them, but, but generally I do. And it's kind of a, it's, it, like I said, everything I do is weird. None of it makes any sense. But it does make sense because it sounds cool. That's and if true. the aim is to sound cool and that sounds cool, then you have succeeded 100% in your aim. <laughs> and, and, and who am I to tell you any different? Like, this is, this is the thing. Like, again, with, with, within the guitar community, there's lots of like, oh, what's the right or wrong way to do this? Mm-hmm. And with, with a handful of things, there, there are, you know, things you need to understand and rules it's sensible to follow. But most of it's just like, do you, does it sound how you wanted it to sound? Right. If so, great. I guess like understanding things technically is useful when it's not sounding like how you want it to sound and you want to get there quicker without just kind of trial and error. But your situation sounds awesome. And I could never do that with my rig because my rig, all I'm trying to do is have like, I suppose a very ordinary studio sound, but on a board Mm -hmm. because I just, I just can't be bothered to use plugins or make decisions after I press stop. (laughs) That's, that's all, that's all I'm trying to do is just like, make decisions as I'm tracking and then like have it repeatable live. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. 
It's probably because I'm probably because I'm a, 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 a knucklehead. He's never doing anything silly. He's just like <laughs> you know, play a nice part to a nice guitar and a nice amp in a room that sounds good, and then print that on a good song. Mm-hmm. That's true. Like um, that's the funny thing about wet dry wet rigs is because they're like an 80s pop studio thing people think oh three amps that's going to be insane and all you're usually doing is just trying to get a slightly more sophisticated version of something very normal (laughs) 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 but just like for kind of like signal management reasons it's very unglamorous right your one sounds much more entertaining it's it's pretty ridiculous it's there's a lot of there's a lot of tap dancing there's a lot of knob twisting there's a lot of uh, a lot of chaos that happens in there um, let's see here. I I get it kind of last minute, and we're getting close to the end of the main portion of the podcast. Um, but I asked the Tone Mob Facebook group if they had any questions for you, and I'm going to go back there and see what we have. Of course, we have some nonsense, because uh, there mm-hmm. always is. We're not going to go there. Uh, we got Okay, no good. <laughs> we got one from Dave Trombetti. He says, does he like black pudding, and would that be a good name for a high-gain metal pedal? <laughs> People always yes, want, they want to know yes. the, British, the British things on black pudding. I love black pudding. Black pudding's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people are pretty grossed out by it because it's got pig's blood in it, but that's that's kind of suggesting that there's nothing gross in American food. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's just like a very controversial British food. There's plenty of gross stuff in American food. <laughs> like, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you agree. No, black pudding's awesome. Uh, to all of your non-British listeners, try black pudding. It's great. And if you go to Ireland, try white pudding. White pudding's great too. Yes, absolutely. I think we could, yeah. Would it be a good name for a high gain metal pedal? Uh, Absolutely, know. definitely. Possibly not an origin one, but one. Something we've painted ourselves into a corner with having to look a bit serious and classy. So, <laughs> so every time, every time we get great ideas for really stupid pedal names, we have to kind of abandon them and come up with something sensible. Can you send those in a document to me? I'm always looking for those, so uh, that would be very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have a think. See, see what I can come up with. Perfect. Uh, let's see. There's a uh, there's another one in here. Yeah, I did this kind of last minute, so I didn't give an, anybody enough time. So apologies, mm-hmm. Tone Mob Facebook group. But uh, Kevin Fontana, he said, I've thrown this out here there before, but what are his all-time favorite pedals that aren't from Origin? Oh, I like that. That's kind of a fun spin. All-time favorite pedals that aren't from Origin. Uh, Strymon Timeline. Mm-hmm pretty much impossible to to live without it um not can i just put effects in that aren't in pedal form sure is that fair uh disonics uh cs5 tri-chorus oh yeah absolutely that's awesome um there's a bloke who makes little midi switches and stuff that work with origin revival drives called cossack effects in denmark and he also makes a pedal that's just a clock. Oh, not a mi- not a MIDI clock, word clock, or anything oh, like that. It's it's lit- no, it's literally a clock that goes on your pedal board. That's uh, yeah, it's a clock stopwatch and countdown timer. And I bought one off of him because I found out about him through work. And it's the coolest thing. Draws more attention to my rig than anything else on it. It's literally just a like a digital clock. 
Yeah, because it's rude to look at your watch when you're playing. It makes you look like you want to go home. <laughs> but also you need to kind of keep on top of things, don't you? Especially if you're MD in a band. It's a great invention. That 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 is that is a good point. You know, uh there was a company a few years ago in the States that also did something similar. Um I don't know that it ever fully got off the ground, but I believe it was called DSW. Um they and they they made a clock as well for that exact same reason. But I don't know if it ever actually went anywhere, unfortunately. So it sounds like this one has. Well, I mean, he's like he's, he's a one-man band operation. If you email him, he'll make you one. Okay. But, <laughs> Perfect. Um, but it's great. Like, um, you know, I, I suppose it's just, again, that's a bit of space on your pedal board that could be a fuzz pedal. So your average guitarist probably isn't going to prioritize that. But a gigging, some, a gigging musician, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, my pedal's de- pedal board's designed to be boring and it doesn't get much more boring than a clock. <laughs> um, and I guess the last one, just being an Opla fan, volume pedal. Oh, sure. Makes sense. Do you have a you have one you like? Yeah, I like I like the boss one because you can adjust the how stiff the treadle is. Mm, that is a nice and it, feature. And it's and it's massive. Also good. I th- I saw there there was a trend towards I think I think DOD or Digitech was making a mini volume pedal, and I was like I get why some people would want that. It also seems like it would be much harder to use, like much harder. I think it'd be it'd be okay if you had like hooves. <laughs> so I think probably like Norwegian black metal bands would be okay with them. They'd be all right, but, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I think there's there's such a thing as a pedal that's too small. Yeah, or just you know sometimes I, mini pedals are continue to be a debate with lots of people, and and sometimes I think they can be. They can be useful in certain scenarios, and sometimes they're just a little bit more hassle than they're worth. So it, it all I mean, depends. Nobody, nobody, nobody said you have to put them right next to each other. That's true. That's true. And, and that's, I guess maybe it's because they wobble around, but just get dual lock instead of Velcro. That's right. Or do what I do and throw it on a table, and then it won't be a problem at all. You'll be fine. All right, so we are, well, we're a little bit over the normal time, and I still have a few classic questions to ask you before I wrap this episode up. But before I do that, I'd like to give you the floor to, you know, shout out your grandma, say whatever you want to say. You know, if there's something you want to get out to a couple thousand people, this is a, a good time to do that. Um, well, I, I suppose it'd be appropriate to keep it origin-related. Um, <laughs> ah, they've had enough of the spotlight. It's all about you. Analog amp recreation pedals from Origin. Have a go on one, because it doesn't matter how many times I, <laughs> I tell people that it it behaves just like an amp. Whenever I see people try them, that's when the light bulb goes on, and they mm-hmm. go, "Oh, mm-hmm. oh, it is it is what you claimed." So, right. uh, yeah, I say have 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 a go on one and um, suspend suspend your disbelief. All right, especially All right. especially real real tube amp nuts because. Somewhat controversially, that's 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 who we're out to get. That's who we're out to convince. Ah, the hardest people to convince, the most stubborn yeah. uh, gorillas in the in the guitar playing space, or people like myself. But yeah, so, but yeah, we all we we all are those people. There was a thing that went round on the gear page recently of like uh, pedal boards of the pedal builders. Somebody started a thread and just tagged a load of a load of pedal companies and said, "Show us your pedal boards. This will be fun." Oh yeah. So we, we, we got quite into that and because we, we've oh, a few of us have built nice pedal boards and wanted to show them off. So we, we sort of did that. And then we got to Simon, the, the company's founder, who's 
gone to these extreme lengths to design these amp recreation pedals. And his photo was just like a wall of old vintage amps. <laughs> it's like a wall of vintage amps and some and some studio rack gear because that's what he likes and he's built stuff to to satisfy those tastes mm-hmm. that's i mean that makes a lot of sense i, so I totally like, understand it's, that it's almost kind of more of an endorsement of the circuits than if he was into pedals because if he was just a pedal guy you'd only have to satisfy a pedal guy wouldn't you that's true now you gotta fin- you gotta satisfy himself which is a vintage amp snob which is gonna be that's gonna be a challenge yeah so uh yeah vintage amp snob challenge let's see it <laughs> nice it's the next next instagram craze isn't it <laughs> i don't know what instagram's becoming anymore i can't keep track well, me neither, which is why i'm just making ridiculous predictions i like it i mean you might as well just throw things at the wall and see what happens at this point Indeed. who knows <laughs> All right. So, final questions. And this is a uh, this first one is a uh, one I try to ask every guest, especially if it's their first time on the show. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not proven to be as difficult of a question as I thought it might be. But what is your favorite boss pedal? Well, because I've listened to your podcast, I kind of knew this was coming. But even then, it didn't take much preparation. DD three. That's been a very very popular one. The DD three. Maybe the most popular one after the tuner. Those are the two answers <laughs> well, I, I get did, the most. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say that because I thought that would just be being a smart ass, wouldn't it? Although that is probably that is probably true. But yeah, DD3. It's just the most bone stock, no-nonsense digital delay. And I think the reason I like it is because I used to be in a covers band with a dude who just always had the most awesome delay sound. And even with fancy things that I've owned since, I'm basically chasing his DD3 tone. It's a great sound. Um, and I think the reason I liked it is because he's really good. <laughs> that, might have some, <laughs> that might have something to do with it, for sure. Well, explain, because I've ended up with my own sounds in the process, but I still get jealous of his. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's his DD3, really. has something to but do with it, But I, I have affection for it, nonetheless. DD3, good answer. All right, and since you've you probably come prepared for this one, too, this is the controversial one. This is the one that gets people in trouble, especially especially over here. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Um, that might change slightly with sort of mood and hangover level, but I think okay. really like a like a proper Southern Italian type of one with not mm-hmm. much on it. Just a margarita. I think there's a, no, a bit more than that. Maybe like okay. some olives and anchovies and a bit of basil or something. But anchovies. Anchovies is one that I thought I would really like because I am a big fish guy in general. But every time I've had it, I felt like it was taking over the pie. Maybe they were just overly salty or something, but I haven't found well, the right I mean, mix yet. Well, this is the thing. If you went if you went down, had one on the Amalfi Coast or something, they probably just wouldn't put too many on. They'd be nice and fresh. Mm, good point. So I think it's part of the like done right. But yeah, yeah. I th- there's a tendency to just cover pizzas in meat, and I don't think that's... Pizzas are more than vehicles for meat, I think. It's true. I I love meat, but you know, a well-balanced cheese slice has also got a, a special place in my heart, so I get it. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, dude. Yeah, nothing, nothing stopping you just going to a barbecue. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you can do both. Yeah. Well, dude, yeah, this has good. been a, a, a really great chat. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And uh, I'm excited to see what we get into on the uh, 
the weirder side, the Patreon side. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, see you on the other side. See you in the Ab- upside down. Absolutely. <laughs> so for John, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, folks, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that little peek behind the origin effects curtain. And if you would like more, if you'd like more of this conversation, and this is where we kind of went off the deep end. We went off the rails quite a bit. John and I spoke for some additional time over on Patreon. So if you like this show, you want it to keep going, you want it to keep doing the thing, and you would like additional content, please check out Patreon, where for five bucks a month, you can get extra episodes beamed directly to your ears every week. And it seriously helps out immensely. I can't even tell you how much of a help it is. It really, 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 truly has been... Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There are times in the past where the Patreon supporters literally made the difference between being able to do the show and not being able to do the show. So thank you so much to everyone who can help out over there. And thank you to everyone who listens in any capacity. In fact, if you could share this with a friend, that would be immensely helpful. The more people we can bring into the whole Tone Mob community, the better it is. And the more I can do, the more content I can create, the more episodes I can make, and the better it is. So please share this with people if you can at all. I would really appreciate that. All right, folks, I will talk to you next time and have yourself a good time. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you, that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas, and we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three.
Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. <laughs> Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.